Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's page 1026 for those of you who would like to have the page number. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Hold it there for a second. We're going to build up to it. A man by the name of Albert Einstein, and I suppose nobody's ever heard of Albert Einstein. Pretty smart fella around the turn of the century. In any case, he said this. This is a saying that came from Albert Einstein. And let me tell you what. As very few, probably just in reading this thing, probably very few people will grasp the depth of what he's trying to say here. It's amazing. The guy was really smart. Uh, Albert Einstein, the single most important decision. Now, he's figured out what is the single most important decision. The single most important decision any of us will ever make is whether or not to believe the universe is friendly. I wish I had time to develop what he's trying to say here. It's amazing that he could come to this, to this conclusion. Because Albert Einstein was not a Christian, by the way. He was Jewish, but he was not a Jew- Judaizer either. He was, he was who he was. He was a scientist. And in his writing, I happened to read a book on Albert Einstein, a, a biography. Matter of fact, I read it twice. It was so interesting. In any case... In his book, he refers to God a lot, but not because he knows who God is. He didn't know what God was or who God was. He was what you'd call, I think, an agnostic. But he is the one that said this. The single most important decision we make is whether we believe we live in a friendly or a hostile universe. Now, if he had been a Christian, he might have framed that just a little bit different. But we would ask the question... uh, Upon what is the universe built? Is it built on force or is it built on love? Is the universe friendly or is its basic premise arbitrary or beyond feeling or exacting and cold? If you happen to be a scientist, and I'm not talking about if you happen to be a scientist, because I believe there are Christian scientists and a Christian scientist will be able to blend in his heart and in his mind that the universe and all the scientific facts are not just cold facts. But scientists, as it is in the world, look at science as a cold fact. It just happens to be the way it is, and they can prove it by test tube or however else they prove it, and it's just a fact, and it has nothing to do with emotions and stuff like this. But the truth of the matter is, we live in a, in a universe, and if you're a scientist, it's a cold universe. It's an unfriendly universe. It's an exacting universe. And Albert Einstein was able to think like, oh, wait a minute, is that true? And the most important question, the most important decision you'll ever have to make is to decide whether the universe is friendly or not friendly. It's amazing. Now, we need to realize that how we relate to the universe demonstrates what we think of God or the universe, for that matter. If we are loving, then we have a loving God. If we are demanding, we have a demanding God. If we are cruel, we have a cruel God. If we're forgiving, we have a forgiving God. Because what we do is measure who we are or try to ascertain who we are and we, we attribute to God what we are mostly. So if you're a cruel person, usually you have a cruel God. If you're a permissive person, you have a permissive God. If you're an exacting person, you have an exacting God. So what kind of person are you? Do you know that if you take the scriptures and you read the scriptures every day, every day, every day, that it has an influence on who you are and who you become? Oh, well, that's what it's all about. That's what it's for, right? 
And so God says we ought to spend an hour each day just contemplating the life of Christ in the Scriptures. It's all about Jesus so that we can become more and more like Jesus by beholding we become changed and we become like Jesus. Yeah. And so are we softening or hardening? Ah, I hope we're softening a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, we're becoming more and more loving. That's what Christians should be known for. Don't you think? Yes, I hope so. The Bible is clear. I had you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're looking at verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one of my favorite verses. Anytime I get to preach on the topic of religious liberty, this is my key text. This is my, my springboard text. And I never forget this text. It is just so beautiful. And it has such implications. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're looking at verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God never uses force to compel conscience. God never uses force to compel the conscience. God takes no pleasure in forced obedience. And anyone who forces themselves on other people is antichrist in spirit and in character in principle. I have a couple of quotations here in my notes uh, that I wrote down from a book I was reading. Watch now. Force is the last resort to a dying cause. Is that true? Sure. Even the most cruel people in the world, even the the greatest dictator, would rather not use force if he didn't have to use force. He's going to use flattery. He's going to use smooth talking. He's going to use bribery. He's going to do everything he can to get you to do what he wants you to do. And if that doesn't work, last resort, what? Force. Well, I have another quotation And it says the same thing. However, it's aimed at somebody else. Watch. Force is the last resort of every false religion. Oh, no. No, no. Religions are good, right? I mean, they're all sweet and they're all tender and they're all... Well, have you ever heard of religious wars? Have you ever heard of religions using force? Do you know I don't think that Christianity has ever done itself a favor when it started using force to try to get somebody else to do what it wants to do? No, we undermine Christianity when we use force. You never saw Jesus use force. You never saw his disciples use force. It's amazing to me. Right now I'm having my devotional times in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts I'm following, of course, the life of Paul through there. And he got beat up, boy, man. Women. (laughs) He really got beat up, didn't he? Over and over and over again. Did he retaliate? Did he get revenge? Did he use force? Did he hammer on people? No. He took it all. He took it all sweetly. He and Silas could be in prison and with their legs up after having been, you know, beaten and, and whipped and all the rest. And they would sing songs of praise to the Lord. And when the earthquake happens... The, the, the jailer thought for sure he was, he was done for. He was going to kill himself. Paul says, don't do it. Paul had nothing against this man. Nothing against him. That's what Christianity is. And when you find religion that uses force, you know the Lord isn't there. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is love. Because, of course, God is love. Okay, we're going to review a little bit what we did yesterday because we talked about the mark of the beast yesterday. We talked about the beast, who it was. We talked about the mark and what it is. And we're just going to review three verses. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to just read together verses 1 to 3 and that will constitute our review. Revelation 13, 1 to 3. 
I stood, this is John the Revelator, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast, that is a nation, rise up out of the sea, populated area, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon its horns ten crowns, and upon its head the name blasphemy. And we established who that was yesterday, so we don't have to review all that uh, by detail. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto the leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And so he has the characteristic. This nation rises up out of the sea, out of a populated area, has the characteristics of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. And then the dragon, we found out that the dragon, Revelation 12, verse 9, the dragon is Satan, remember? And Satan gives this entity, this nation, its seat of authority, power. Wow. Verse 3, and I saw one of its head as it was wounded to death. 1798, Berthier invades the papacy, the Vatican, takes the papal, the Pope captive, and the Pope dies in exile in 1799, August 29. I saw as it was, I saw one of his head as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. Ah, 1929, Mussolini returns the Vatican to be a political power and the deadly wound begins to heal. 1929. We saw all of that last night. And then it says, all the world wondered after that entity, that beast, the papal power. All the world wondered. It's coming. As a matter of fact, I think all the world is wondering now. It's gained in power, amazing power it has. A lot of influence to the point that even America is beginning to bow in that direction. Well, anyway, today um, our study asks, where does America fit into all of this? This is what we want to study this evening. Where does America fit in? Revelation chapter 13, we're looking at verse 11. Revelation 13, verse 11. And I beheld another beast, another nation now, you know, I always wonder why the Lord used the word beast because it has such a connotation. I guess nations are beastly in many respects. It just means nation. And I beheld another nation coming up out of the earth. Hmm. Out of the earth. What does the earth represent? Well, it's very, very easy to think about it. Uh, the first beast rose up out of the sea, which represents a very populated area. And here, the, 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 the Bible writer is making a contrast between the one beast that comes up out of the sea and the other beast comes up out of the earth. And if the sea represents a populated area, then obviously the earth represents what? A sparsely populated area. That's right. Okay. Now, we're going to take a little hiatus here. We're going to go back to verse 10 in Revelation 13. We're going to come back to to this beast in Revelation 13.11. We'll go to verse 10 for just a minute. Because this is a principle that you need to see. A principle that works. It's a principle of God that applies to each one of you, each one of us. And more than that, it applies to, to churches, it applies to institutions, it applies to corporations, it applies to cities and nations and the world. And God always measures His people and His nations and His corporations, whatever it is, by this rule. Verse 10. Look at verse 10. It's an amazing rule. I love it. Scary though. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword 
must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, what's the principle here? How we treat people is the way we will be treated. That's the principle. I'm going to share with you three other verses that say the same thing. And I'm emphasizing this this evening because it's true for you and me as well as for any church or any nation or the whole world or the universe for that matter because God holds Himself responsible to you to treat you like you treat other people. Isn't that amazing? Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is page 854 in Matthew chapter 7. 854. This is Matthew 7. We're looking at verse 1 and 2. Judge not that ye be not judged. Now you remember a few studies ago we talked about judging and that we would be called upon to judge different things. This is not what this is saying here. Like don't judge if you see somebody killing somebody. Uh, don't judge. Well, no, you can judge that. You know what it is. You know that it's murder and you know that it's sin. You can judge that easily enough. This is not what it's saying. The verse here, the, the word here, judge, is the same word as condemn. This is really what this is saying here. Condemn not that ye be not condemned. Why? For with what judgment or with what condemnation you condemn, ye shall be condemned. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. How you treat other people is the way you will be treated. Be nice already. That's what it says. Because you're going to taste what you're giving to other people. Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. We're looking at verse 1 in Isaiah 33. Verse 1. It says the same thing. All in other words, Isaiah 33, verse 1. Woe to thee! Now, the page is 632. Woe to thee! So that's spoilest. Now, the word spoil here in the Old Testament really means to rob. When a king would overcome another nation, they would take everything. They would rob everybody of everything they've got. And that's what it means here. So, woe to thee that robs, and thou wast not robbed or spoiled. And dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with you. If you're treacherous, you're going to be dealt with treacherously. That's what it says. If you're, if you're a thief, you're going to get robbed. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The things we do to others is the things that happen to us. Psalms, Psalms 7. Psalm 7, this is page 483. In Psalms chapter 7, we're looking at verse 15 and verse 16. In Psalms 7. It says there, He made a pit and digged it and is fallen into the ditch which He made. His mischief shall return upon His own head and His violent dealing shall come down upon His own pat or His own head. This is what it's saying here. So, what you plan to do to others, you're going to find out is going to come back on you. Ah, friends, listen. We've been looking at the first beast. Uh, we did that for two days and last night also. And the way that it deals with people is the way that God is going to deal with it. But it's also true about the second beast we're, we're looking at. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. It's also true about the second beast we're looking at. We're looking at 
America and Prophecy, Revelation chapter 13. We've already read a little bit of verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. And we've established what that means. It comes out of a sparsely populated area. Okay? So the question is now, which nation? About the time when the papacy was received a deadly wound, about the time of 1798, which nation at that time was rising up to preeminence? Do you know? In a sparsely populated area? Well, it's not hard to figure out. There isn't any other nation like that in the world as far as I can tell. Sure, it's the United States of America. And what's interesting is that in 1798, of course, it's France that inflicted the deadly wound using Berthier to uh, arrest the Pope and to send him in exile. But do you know that in 1798, France was the first nation to acknowledge America as a sovereign nation? Same date. It's as if the Lord, you know, he, he puts all these little, these little hints in there, these little cues everywhere. Revelation 13, verse 11, the second half. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Wow, two horns like a lamb. What does a lamb represent in the Bible? Jesus. Hmm. Now this scripture isn't saying that this nation is a lamb. No, no, but it is lamb-like. And what is the lamb like? Innocent. Oh, yes. Loving. You know, Jesus in Luke chapter 4. I'll have you turn to Luke chapter 4. We have a description, not a description so much as his anointing, his his charge, his what he came down here to do. And in uh, Luke chapter 4, this is page 908, Luke chapter 4, we're looking at verses 18 and 19. Jesus himself is speaking here and he's telling everyone why he came down to this world, what he came to this world to do. Notice what is written here of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. That's at his baptism. He was anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the broken in heart. He has sent me to preach deliverance to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Yeah. yeah. And so when on earth, Jesus came down here to rescue people from the them of sin. He came to rescue people from bondage, didn't he? He came to set at liberty them that were that were in bondage to the sins that were taking them in chains, to set free the people from oppression and to help the people. And not he didn't come here to control anyone, did he? Any time in the gospel did you ever find Jesus controlling somebody? No. As a matter of fact, you know, he's walking down the street on the road to Emmaus. He's got two disciples with him. And when they come to their homes, he pretends to walk on. He doesn't force himself. He doesn't come in unless you invite him, you see. And that's what he did. He didn't, he didn't force. He, and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, why don't you come home with us? And so then he obliged them because he was willing to come home. And he did that all the time. He never forced himself on anyone. He was always seeking to see who he could relieve, who he could free, who he could put at liberty. Now, friends, listen. This is what America was like. A land free from religious oppression. Do you know that the, why the pilgrims came from Europe to America? Why did they come? 
because there was religious oppression in Europe all the time. There was martyrdom, there was, there was force used against people who would read their own Bible. So they came over here and they almost started doing the same thing on this side until there are different individuals, and I can't bring them to mind right now, who decided, no, no, this isn't what America is supposed to be like. We are going to be a land that is free. And people are going to be worshipping according to the dictates of their own consciences. That's what's going to happen. This land is where we are going to protect the minority from the majority. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Was the Spirit of God here in America? Oh yeah, well let me tell you something. The Spirit of God is still in America. Oh yes, the Spirit of God is still in America. I praise the Lord for America all the time. What a blessed nation it is. And do you know that I am not American? <laughs> no, but I have studied the Constitution of America and I have studied the amendments to the Constitution and I know that God has been guiding in all of this to provide a land to give freedom to a special people. You and me. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what God has done here. Yeah, it's amazing that a man can pursue his dreams in America. Still, today, it's true. A man can be a Protestant in America. A man can be a Catholic in America. A man can be a Muslim. A man can be a Hindu in America, unmolested, still to this day. Oh, I understand. There are sometimes individuals that will beat up on people. But no, as a nation, it is still a free country. Praise God. I don't know how long it's going to last. As a matter of fact, I wish that I could stand here tonight and tell you that it's going to keep on going like this forever. But for the Bible, I happen to understand that it's not going to keep on like that forever. We're still in verse 11. Uh, Revelation chapter 13. Going back, Revelation chapter 13, we're looking at verse 11. And I beheld another beast, that is another nation, coming up out of the earth, a sparsely populated place. And he had two horns because he was lamb-like. He was like Jesus. Freedom, liberty, that's what this land provided. And then it says, he spake as a dragon. Well, who's the dragon? Satan, Revelation 12, verse 9. That's who the dragon is. And... We want to look at that word spake. You know that it's a symbolism, don't you? It isn't the United States speaking. Well, it is the United States speaking, but it is symbolism nevertheless. You know, when President Obama speaks, it isn't pre-recorded in the Scriptures. <laughs> when George Bush used to speak, it wasn't pre-recorded in the Scriptures. Not even when George Washington speak or Abraham Lincoln spoke. That was never pre-recorded in the Bible. But when the Bible says a nation speaks, it is with a collective voice. It is with a, with a legislative decree. That's how it works. And so, you know, God takes the nation and says, He spake, like as if He was singular. He spake with the voice of a dragon. In other words, He is legislating for the whole nation and He's saying, this is the decree. So, apparently, there's coming a time. I tell you what, there's coming a time. When this nation is going to legislate, it's going to speak like a dragon. It's going to legislate on behalf of the enemy, Satan. Really? No. If you go to verse 5 in uh, Revelation 13, we're looking at verse 5. And then we're looking at the first beast now, uh, the papal power. 
And that was given unto him. By the way, I, I have to make a disclaimer here. You know, I don't want to scare people to death and I don't want to insult anyone. When I speak of the papal power, I'm speaking of the system, the papal system. I'm not speaking of individual Roman Catholic people. As a matter of fact, I grew up in the Catholic Church and all my relatives and all my family is still to this day Roman Catholic except for a few that have followed uh, me. Or not us, me, but Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And they're the nicest people in the world. And most people have not a clue what I'm talking about here. And they're not evil people. Ah, but there's a system and we're speaking about the system here. Verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth. This is the... Papal power, the papal system. There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things, blasphemous things. And, well, it goes on to say blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. One thousand, twelve hundred and sixty days. Decreeing great blasphemies by fiat, by papal bulls, by legislation, by decree this entity would make a decision and it would be carried out against the people, against the Lord, really. So in America, inspired the opposite way, inspired by heaven, by legislation, created the greatest country this earth has ever seen, as far as I can tell. You know? Ah, I suppose if we went back to Israel, when it was in its purity as a nation, when David was on the throne and Solomon for a while... I suppose we could look at nation, that nation and say that's probably the greatest nation this world has ever seen. I don't know how the Lord relates to that. I have to ask Him sometimes. You know? But as far as I'm concerned, there is no nation like America in this world in a long time. <laughs> in a long, long, long time. Yeah. But we are seeing here as we're studying the Bible that America will reverse its course. America will subvert freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. Eventually, according to the Bible, America will duplicate the oppression which once ruled the old world. And somebody might say, no way, that ain't going to happen. Not in America, not according to the Constitution we have. Well, that's true, not according to the Constitution we have. There's no way it can do that with the Constitution we have. But somebody, there are a lot of people today talking about changing the Constitution. Do you ever hear them? Don't let them. <laughs> well, if you have the power... Don't let them. Oh, friends, listen. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Something is changing at the very heart of this nation. Our politicians are losing sight of the founding fathers' intentions with the Constitution and with, it, with its relevant amendment, amendments. It's the truth. And you can see it everywhere. There's a lot of talk even among religious leaders, if you listen to the radio, how that they are beginning to say that this idea of a separation of church and state is wrong. As a matter of fact, they say it was never constitutional because you know those words were never used in the Constitution at all. And so they say, because we have interpreted it that way, they say, well, that, that's not what it was meant. That's not what the Founding Fathers mean. And so, they want that changed. Well, you can see why, can't you? You know, there used to be a time when we could pray in school. Now we can't pray in school. There used to be a time when we could pray at a football game. Now we can't pray at a football game. There used to be a time when we could have Christmas. <laughs> now you can hardly have a crash, you know, uh, under a Christmas tree anywhere because it's against 
the separation of church and state. These are the negative sides of separation of church and state. And, and you know, people go too far sometimes. But there, there is a positive side. Do you know what the positive side is? The government cannot interfere with your, con- interfere with your conscience. The government cannot decide what you're going to worship and when you're going to worship and how you're going to worship. The government cannot impose religion on anyone in this nation. That's the positive side. That's the side they don't talk about. They talk about prayer and prayer and school, of course, and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I feel bad. Ah, the devil is wily. Let me tell you what. The devil is wily. Turn with me to Revelation 13. We're still there, I guess. Go to verse 16, Revelation 13. This is the second beast. This is America now. It says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads. As the first beast caused in the past, during the Dark Ages, as the first beast used force to get people to bow to their religious dogmas, So the second beast is going to do the same thing. Verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Ah, I hope you're seeing what I'm seeing. Just like during the Dark Ages, the papal power used military force, military might, But it used the military might of subservient nations to enforce the mark of its authority. And so we can see here, we can begin to see that the first beast is going to use America. What? What for? To enforce the mark of its authority again. And so we read that in verse 16. So what's the difference between a mark in the forehead and a mark in the hand? We spoke about that last night. Wanda wasn't here, so she didn't hear it. What's the difference between receiving a mark in the forehead and a mark in the hand? Do you remember? That's right. In the forehead is our frontal lobe where we make decisions, where our conscience is, where we make judgments and where we reason. And there are some people who will follow, follow the first beast and say, yes, yes, and I'll do it. And they do it from conviction or whatever. They do it from their... The mark is in the forehead. But there are some people who will understand, but they will be afraid. And out of fear, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of fear they will bow. And they will receive the mark in the hand. It's the difference between believing it and being forced to do it. And they will do it. You wouldn't do it, would you? I hope not. I hope not. Let's go on. Yeah. Verse 13 and 14. Revelation 13, verse 13 and 14. Maybe we should read right from verse 11. Let's just keep the context in view. And I beheld another nation coming up out of the earth. It's called America. And he had two horns like a lamb. Lamb-like, this nation, because liberty was at its, at its front. And... There coming a time when he spake or legislated like a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him. Notice that. And he caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. 
and he doeth great wonders. That's what we're looking at now. He doeth great wonders so that he makes fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Did you notice how cunning the enemy is here? Morality is in a steep decline here in America right now. And so, and so are disasters, of course, intensifying. We see that and it's proportionate to the, to the disasters that morality is declining also. Therefore, the cry is going to be from the people. We need to get back to God. We need to get back to church. We need to worship on Sunday. So the politicians, pushed by popular demand, are going to want to legislate religious observance. And But notice in the verse, it's going to be backed by miracles. Now, that's not good. <laughs> Can people perform miracles? No, not usually, anyway. So what are the people going to think? When a miracle happens, they're going to say, oh, this is coming from what? God, it's coming from God. Now notice the miracle that's going to happen here. Did you notice what exactly, I mean, the one miracle? I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of miracles happening. Did you notice which one is pointed out? What is it? Fire is going to come down from heaven. Has fire ever come down from heaven before? And who was it that brought fire down from heaven? God, that's true. And in, in, in response to whose prayer? Elijah's prayer. Sure, you remember the story. Israel had been in apostasy. Ahab and Jezebel had been Baal worshippers. And the Israelites had followed their king and their queen. And then Elijah comes along and he invites them up on top of Mount Carmel. All of Israel, come on, it's showdown time. And then, of course, there's an altar and he pours water and water and water and water and water on it so that, you know, he can prove it's going to be a miracle. And then, of course, he prays to heaven and fire comes down from heaven. And do you remember what the people said? The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Because He worked such a miracle. Well, Satan saw that and he said, man, I could use that sometime. <laughs> that would be great. When I want what I want, that's what I'll do. If I can, if the Lord allows him, of course. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Satan, at a certain point in time, he's going to use someone and his fire is going to come down from heaven. What do you think the people are going to say? You know, there are three Elijahs in the Bible, don't you? This is the first Elijah, the one that brought fire down from heaven. When God brought fire down from heaven. Yeah. Who's the second Elijah? John the Baptist. One day Jesus is standing with his disciples. He sees John the Baptist. He says, hey guys, you see that man? This is the Elijah that is to come. And so, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord to come. Do you know that there will be an Elijah in the last days? And you can find him. You want to read about him. It's in Malachi chapter 4. But it says there that he turns the hearts of the fathers to their children. He turns the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's amazing, but the message is that of, of family. Do you know that there's an attack on families in this world today? Oh, there is. Why? Well, because somebody has figured out that if you destroy the family, you destroy the nation. Because the foundation of the, fa of the nation is built on the family. And so, somebody's figured that out. I wonder who it is. Yeah. Do you know that you notice that this third Elijah doesn't call fire down from heaven? He doesn't. That isn't his thing. That isn't God's thing anymore either. So the enemy decides that he's going to do it. And why is he going to do it? Verse 14, the first 
Eight words, what did it say? And deceives them that dwell upon the earth. He does it to what? To deceive, that's what it is. People will think that the miracle has come from God. And what do you think they're going to say? What do you want, Lord? That's what they're going to say. And what is he going to say? Verse 14 again, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had a wound by the sword and did live. That's what I want you to do. Make an image. What for? Verse 12. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Yeah, there you are. Now America is not going to say to the people in America, I want you to worship the papacy. No, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is going, there's going to be legislated a national Sunday law and everyone will have to obey that law. And that will constitute a worship of the beast. you know why? Because it's the mark of his authority. That's why. Yeah, amazing. From a magazine, Houston Chronicle, I guess it's a newspaper, Houston Chronicle, 1994. The uh, article was entitled, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Let me read from that article now, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, Houston Chronicle, 1994. Evangelicals, including Pat Robertson and Chuck Colson, joined with conservatives, conservative Roman Catholic leaders Tuesday in holding the ties that bind the faith of the nation's largest and most politically active religious group. In the last generation, it has become common for Catholics and evangelicals to work together. What's different in this declaration is a common faith. Now, why is it different? Because they had no common faith. They've never had a common faith. They've never believed the same thing. As a matter of fact, it was right down to the very basic of the Bible. How is a man saved? And they were, had two theologies. You know that, don't you? The whole Reformation was fought on the idea of how is a man saved? Is he, saved, is he righteous by faith or is he righteous by works? And all of a sudden, we've come to the place where evangelicals and Catholics can work together. It doesn't make any sense. How can they work together? They still don't believe the same thing. Ah, except that it doesn't matter anymore. Do you know why? Because as Protestants, we've come to the place where the Bible doesn't mean anything anymore. Fooey on the Bible. Hey, let's get together. Let's be buddies. Let's work together. We've got an agenda and we can be in control here if we will just work together. I wonder what God thinks of this. Common faith. What common faith did Wycliffe have with the papacy? What common faith did Huss have with the papacy? Or Luther, or Zwingli, or Calvin, or Wesley, or John Knox, or any of the reformers, or us, for that matter. What common faith? There is no common faith. Because we stand on the word of God instead of the traditions of men. Now, from a famous name here, Jerry Falwell. Listen to what Jerry Falwell has to say. I guess we can read that probably on the screen. All Americans would do well to petition the president. Notice what he's saying here. All Americans, this is Jerry Falwell, I don't understand. All Americans would do well to petition the president and the Congress to make a federal law, an amendment to the Constitution. Notice that, an amendment to the Constitution. He's saying... We would do well to petition the government to change the Constitution, if need be, to re-establish the Sabbath as a national day of rest. Now, which Sabbath is he talking about? Oh, well, sure. 
That's what it is. Now that's an amazing thing, actually. It's hard to believe that it comes out of the mouth of a Protestant. Pat Robertson has, has even worse to say. Pat Robertson, another leader in evangelicalism. It is not the duty of any particular group of people. It is not the duty of the church. But it is the duty of the government of the people. To thus proclaim the day of Sabbath to be universally observed throughout the length and breadth of our land. To keep Sunday as the Lord's day. So let's let the government tell the people what they need to do. Really? Wow. Uh, I'll tell you what. We have enough government. <laughs> no, really, really. There is enough rules. You know what happens, right? Something goes wrong and so you invent a rule to keep it from happening again. It's like going to, to academy. It's like going to high school, right? Some kid does something stupid and so they invent another rule and all the kids have to follow this new rule because some kid did something stupid so there's another rule. Well, the next week another kid does something stupid so they invent another rule and pretty soon academies are so full of rules that the kids are are strangled. They can't move. There's so many rules. But do you know that it works the same for a nation? It works the same. This is what's happening, it seems to me. Little by little, our, our, we're losing our liberties. Not because men are bad. Not because men want to be dictators at this point in time. But because bad things happen, like 9-11. So, 9-11, well, let's have homeland security and tighten the screws on everybody so that it doesn't happen again. Well, how far can that go? Well, it can go all the way to the National Sunday Law. That's what can happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Pat Robertson goes on to say, this is the same, same um, quotation here, if we would escape the doldrums of increased trouble, uh, there's a lot of troubles, and by the way, uh, it was Pat Robertson when 9-11 happened that said, this is punishment by God on the nation. And it was Pat Robertson that said, when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, he's the very one that said, this is punishment on New Orleans. Well, friends, I think that's probably true, but it's really dumb to say so. <laughs> yeah. If we would escape the doldrums of increased trouble, as God's hand rests heavily upon His people, opposition to Sunday as a national, nationally declared day of rest must cease. No more opposition to legislated Sunday. That's what He wants. Wow. The big push. This is really the issue. Force the people to worship on Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Let's do like the papacy did in the dark ages. Let's force the consciences of the people. Are there other people in this world besides Seventh-day Adventists that don't need to be forced to, to worship on Sunday? Oh, sure. There'll be lots of Seventh-day Baptists, Seventh-day... Uh, um, uh, Worldwide Church of God, sure. And, well, I don't know anymore. There's, they split in two. I guess it's true. Yeah, huh? and atheists, yeah, and Jews, and on and on and on. So that we won't be alone in this thing when it happens. I wonder who stands in the end. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Now, what about the common people? How does the common people in America relate to this? Do you know that there was a survey done? And some of the questions asked in the survey went like this. Do you believe the Bible? Well, that's a good survey question, right? Do you believe in the devil? That's a good survey question. Another question was this. Do you, the United States of America is a Christian nation. Should the government make laws to keep it that way? And do you know, 48% of the people said, yes, we should have laws 
to keep it Christian. Well, what do you say? Should that be nationally? Yes. National, national, yes. Naturally, yeah, that's yeah. nationally. Uh huh. Sorry. <laughs> we'll spank her later. <laughs> yeah. And so there was a newspaper, and the newspaper headlines was Christians, Christian laws wanted. That was the, that, that was the headline. Christian laws wanted. Do you know that this is not a Christian nation? Do you know that it was founded by Christians mostly, but not all of them were Christian, by the way. This is not a Christian nation. This is a free nation. It's a free nation. And you can be a Christian here without molestation. Uh, it's coming, though. July 30, 1998. July 30, 1998. Pope Paul II wrote a letter called Dies Domini. And here's what he said in that thing. And, I, and you, some of you can probably remember this encyclical. Therefore, also, in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respect their duty to keep Sunday law. Now, that is fancy talking, I'll tell you. But what's he saying here? Yeah, Christians will naturally strive, that is, they'll push the government to ensure that civil legislation respect their duty to keep Sunday holy. Is Sunday holy? No. <laughs> they can't keep what holy what isn't holy. Anyway, there's the push. Let's push the government to do that. Surprise, surprise. No surprise. Because that's the way the papacy has always acted in throughout the Dark Ages. That was its mode of operation. And it's still the same thing today. And today, of course, the papacy's popularity is drawing Protestants to itself. And they think to be on the same terms together, of course. The Bible prophesied it 2,000 years ago. And what if people should refuse to go along with what's going to happen soon? Revelation 13, 16 and 17. This is what's going to happen to us if we refuse. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond. There will be no respecter of persons in those days. The most important thing on their minds would be everyone's going to keep Sunday. Period. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So that will be the issue in that day. But look at verse 15. It gets even worse. Verse 15. And he had the power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, that is, legislate, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So there's going to be a death decree. You remember, force is the last resort to a dying cause. And so they're going to try, first of all, by bribery and by flattery and by smooth talking and by argument and by everything. And, you know, a lot of preaching. There's going to be a lot of preaching from the bully pulpit of the government one of these days. They're going to try that way. And little by little, because it's not working, the fines are going to come, and then the imprisonments are going to come, and then the slavery is going to come, and then finally, we just can't get these people to straighten out. We need to just get rid of them. Death decree. Ah, friends. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They refused to bow to any image, and God delivered them. He did deliver them. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? 
there is liberty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is Daniel chapter 3. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Ah, friends, how is it with you? Do you give people freedom? Or are you a control freak? I don't want to make eye contact with anyone here. I don't feel like I'm accusing you. I really don't know most of you. You're just a little controlling? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, some things need to be controlled. <laughs> ah, but where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's liberty. If there's no liberty, what do we know? Yeah, no. We're not talking about kids. Kids need guidance. And they need to be controlled, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Were you going to worship on Sunday when National Sunday Law is legislated? Or will you be willing to die? Or to risk everything to serve God? Isn't that going to be a hard question? A hard decision sometime in the future? I tell you, it's not going to be easy. Yeah. But, day by day, we are making decisions. And if our decisions, day by day, the daily tests, if we always decide on the side of the Lord, then little by little we will grow to the point where when the big tests come, we can decide on the side of the Lord again. I'm going to pray for all of you. You can pray for me too, by the way, because it's coming. We're all facing it. There's the Lord, and not everyone's going to make it. But everyone in here will make it right. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.